I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram Ninja. Hello. My man. Hello. We are at the end of our six-month deep dive into Enneagram villains. It's been six months. Not sure what lasted longer in my soul, this study or all of 2020. (laughs) There's a tug. Yeah, it it feels like we've been doing this forever, uh, but it also feels like it just started last week, and I could be talking about the pandemic or our (laughs) villain series, either one. And good news, those kind of overlap in terms of the darkness that they're bringing into the lives of people we care about. (laughs) We began with a Stephen King villain, and we're going to end with a Stephen King villain. I didn't even think about that. Now, here's the thing, though. Before we get into the nine villains... This this feels like an oxymoron, because clearly nines aren't villainous. They're peacemakers, I've heard. Yeah. Peace and goodness are not the same thing. Ooh, that's a hefty distinction. Yeah. It's a unpack that before we get (laughs) I mean this is a life lesson for nines. Peace (laughs) does not equal good. Uh I don't know that there's more to say about that. Just because things are calm doesn't mean they're virtuous. They're uh good, worthwhile, they're just healthy, whole. I think there's a Martin Luther King quote in there on that. Peace without justice is something. Sure. I, I'm i terrible at famous quotes. Yeah. If you want me to quote a TV show, I could probably do that. <laughs> something famous and actually worthwhile? I have no idea. <laughs> this was the hardest for me, however. Uh, like, I got, bi- I got a big long list of eight villains. Mm-hmm. I got all of five for nines, and we're only talking about three of them. Right. Well, I think that just nine villains are, we're not cinematic. We're not good stories. Mm. As as we'll see from some of the villains that we're talking about in the nines, like, like the, the impact that we have is a different kind of villainy, whereas eights are going to be traditional antagonists. I'm sure it's the case that there are professional screenwriters making fantastic, Hollywood films that listen to our podcast. But here is a $100 million idea. The four villains that we're talking about that are nines are part of the most successful movies ever, and I couldn't think of any others. Sure. So this is unplotted territory. This is, is that the right word? This is, this is, I I had the COVID here recently. (laughs) By By the way, I work from home. My, somebody in my family brought it home and we yeah. think it was the dog. The, it's probably the dog. Don't worry about the Nobody else got sick. Yeah. Four, nine villains, and they're part of some of the most important, successful movies ever. Right. 
one of which would be the beginning of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The MCU began with Iron Man, right. and the villain is one Obadiah Stane. Fantastic villain. If if that villain doesn't work, that movie doesn't work. Right. And it doesn't set the stage for a future of Marvel movies taking over blockbuster cinema. I'm not sure that anyone, in terms of the entire MCU, I think Jeff Bridges steps up to Robert Downey Jr.'s energy level and actually poses a threat, unlike any of the other villains that pop up. Sure. I really like those actors. I mean, they're all world-class actors that are the villains. They're playing Thanos. They're playing Whiplash. They're playing... um, What's the Iron Man 3 villain? It's the fire. Uh, it's the blow-up guy. Yeah, I don't remember what he was called, but it was Guy Pierce. Yeah, it's Guy. Right, there you go. And um, they're, yeah, fantastic actors. And none of them really offer the same kind of opposition to Tony Stark, and, and particularly to Robert Downey Jr.'s version of Tony Stark. Yep, that's yeah. it. I think yeah. Jeff Bridges is amazing in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, uh... Mickey Rourke, Whiplash is that his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, Whiplash is is not a Tony Stark villain. Whiplash is exclusively an Iron Man villain. Yeah, that's a good. Way and of it. Guy Pierce is more of a Tony Stark villain than an Iron Man villain. Yep. And Obadiah Stane offers both places for a brand new type of hero. Yeah. We will also talk through perhaps the most unique villain on all of our lists, which is one Milton Wadman from Office Space. I'm really excited about that one. I'm so glad we added that to the list. This is going to be so much fun. This was a TJ recommendation, and it immediately pops yeah. when you when you say, of course, he actually does have some villainous stuff going on there, and it's a perfect nine. Mm-hmm. The last the last of the uh, nines I have on my list is Jabba the Hutt, who we've already talked about in our fantastic deep dive into Star Wars. So if you really got into the villain series that we did, and you want to go back and look up our stuff that we did on Star Wars and the MCU, we talked about a lot of these pop culture characters, but we spent a bunch of time on Jabba, uh, typing Jabba between an eight and a nine, and we landed on nine. And there's lots of fun stuff that we'll probably reference throughout this. We're not going to do the deep dive here on Jabba because we've already done it, but probably bring it up occasionally. Right. The work's been done so we can reference it. It's fine. Just go back and listen to that one. Those are three great movies. Yeah. Iron Man, Return of the Jedi, and Office Space. Yep. Those are, those, those are some classics right there. That's true. And the movie we're going to get into is, in my mind, the greatest movie ever made. It's it's definitely up there. What is what does your list put it at? We'll get to it. Well, right. actually, I'll, I'll pitch it. <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter has this movie at number four. Okay. Behind Citizen Kane, Wizard of Oz, and The Godfather. Oh, wow. That's how epic this movie is. Yeah. Uh, this is commonly, however... A fan favorite for fans. Yeah. If you take out all of the professional movie critics, this one lands as number one on the IMBD top-rated movies. It's number one in Empire Magazine's poll of readers in 2006, and it is number two on Ranker.com behind Forrest Gump, which has no business being anywhere close to the top 100 movies. Ah, uh, that's... <laughs> <this is> caref- <laughs> Them's fighting words, sir. <laughs> 
Please don't <laughs> at us. I may have Can't had a bad with experience a with a past girlfriend when we went to see <laughs> Forrest Gump. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing at your pain. I'm laughing at the fact that you don't like Forrest Gump because you had a bad experience. <laughs> I like Forrest Gump fine. I can name uh, a handful of other movies. For, so Forrest Gump won the Best Picture in 1994 mm-hmm. against this movie. Oh, really? Oh, this movie is so much better. It won against this movie. It won against Pulp Fiction. Okay. It won against Quiz Show. And I love Quiz Show. The Academy did not know what they were doing that year. Maybe they just couldn't decide, so they drew straws. The other movie that was up, you may get... I, I would be curious if you would get animated. It was uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral was up for Best Picture in, sure. against against these. Those I mean, the that, five. There's no way Four Weddings and a Funeral is going to win against these. But, right? You know. Fun fact, Pulp Fiction and this movie came out on the same day. Wow. Arguably the best movies of the 1990s for sure. Man, 94 was a good year for movies. Come on. I graduated in 94. Sure. Roaring Fork High School Rams. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that epic setup, you want to introduce our villain beho- behind door number nine? My, my people, the nines, we are going to be very excited to claim Warden Norton. Warden Norton from Shawshank Redemption. I love everything about the Shawshank Redemption. Because it's an amazing, amazing film. That's The story is really, really good, and every person who plays a role in it yep. does a spectacular job in their role. This may be the high point for every single actor that's in this movie. It's all sure. these character actors, with the exception of Morgan Freeman, who just breaks open... After this, it just seems like all these character actors they brought in to play these roles. But that's exactly right. There's not one bad casting decision in this movie. In fact, when I think about all of these actors, Clancy Brown, Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, and of course, the great Bob Gunton, who plays Samuel Norton. This is who I think of. It's these roles. Yeah, I we did talk. We have talked several times about Clancy Brown and the fact that like like one great story about Clancy Brown is that he can't go places without being remembered as this so, character. Okay, you want to hear something really embarrassing? Yes. I mixed him up with the guy who plays Boggs. Mm. It's the guy who plays Boggs who can't who can't go around and oh, I kept I sure. kept having they look real similar if I mean if you think about it. Uh, especially as they got, well, as they got older. (laughs) I screwed that all up and then I was embarrassed. So being the one that I am, I got to come clean, got to tell y'all, hey, uh, sorry, edit on on some of them past episodes. It's fair. It's the thing that happens. I get it. My my apologies to both actors. The uh, fun fact on this movie, it made only $16 million in theaters. What? Because it was up against Pulp Fiction in the... (laughs) (laughs) It was up against Pulp Fiction, one. And two, all the actors said when people would come and tell them how much they liked the movie, Mm -hmm. they could never remember the name of the movie. Oh. Because it's... (laughs) Okay. I get that. Because it's the the Shawshank Redemption. Like They don't talk about Shawshank Prison very often. Yeah. They don't say the name of the prison. 
So people yeah. will be the shmishmash reception. That was fantastic. I saw that. That's not <laughs> those aren't words. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Robbins got sick of this. I guess sure. he get angry. Uh, but uh, apparently they didn't want to do Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption, which is the name of Stephen King's uh, novella. Mm. Because they didn't want people to think it was a movie about Rita Hayworth. Which is fair. It's not. Right. <laughs> and and I would definitely have thought that if I had seen that title. Right? Yeah. One of my... Uh, TJ will be familiar with this because I love making lists as coffee shop because there's a whiteboard that I can occasionally sabotage and put top 10 lists up. But my favorite of the top 10 lists that we've ever done at your coffee shop was your favorite trilogies mm-hmm. and so obviously you have people putting lord of the rings a toy story star wars etc it may be the case that my favorite trilogy is from stephen king wrote a book called different seasons it has the shawshank redemption the body which became stand by me and the apt pupil which is a dark disturbing really well done film with ian mckellen in it i love that as a trilogy because those, because Stand by Me and and Shawshank are just so, such quality. Anyway, right. The director of this film is coming of age and and doing his uh, work. This is just another fun fact about just the creation of this story. Right when Stephen King is kind of blowing up, and Stephen King just writes short stories galore. He's got big books, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, uh, Everything's Eventual, Night Shift handful of big books that just are filled with these little short stories. And he said to film students, if you make a film using this stuff, I will, I'll, I'll give you permission to do it. If it, if it's any good, I would love to see it. And then we can maybe do something with it. Well, the, the director, uh, Darabont makes some of these, sends them to King. King actually likes them. And he goes to King and says, Actually, my favorite of your short stories is the novella, Rita Hareworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And King sells him the rights for $5,000. Uh. Darabont takes the check, or, or King takes the check and puts it in a drawer. Yeah. When the movie actually comes out, yeah. King sends him back the check framed, and it says <laughs> underneath, this is in case you ever need bail money. Love Steve. <laughs> Get, Stephen King liked the movie so much, gave him his money back. That's awesome. Which is even more funny when you hear uh, the 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 director when he first pitched the movie mm-hmm. went to Rob Reiner, and Rob Reiner had done Misery, he had done Stand by Me. These are both Stephen King movies. He's like, I really want to produce another Stephen King movie with you and with Castle Rock, with Rob Mark Reiner's film company. Reiner reads the script. And offers Darabont $2.5 million for the script and the rights. Oh, good night. And this is just, you'll know that the punchline of the movie is get busy living or get busy dying. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially where Darabont's at in terms of that decision. Does he really want to make this movie that's his favorite story or does he want to sell it for money? And he went ahead, made the movie. It's a smart choice. Gutsy. Yeah. I like it. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? No. No. No, because it was so long ago. Eh? I have a very vivid memory of this movie the first time I saw it. Sure. We, we, I, was at, uh, I was in school, 
was at the University of Northern Colorado, where I teach now. I got my undergrad there. I remember walking into a dining hall, and it was on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I watched a little bit of it, not knowing what it was about. It felt like a drama. I went and ate on the other side of the cafeteria because I didn't want to watch a drama. Sure. And then we had, like, UNC TV, and they just wa- they just uh, had movies playing all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> for students. And I was in my wife's dorm room, and we decided to sit down and watch this movie, and there was a bunch of us. And I remember being so emotionally affected, like just roller coaster emotions of fear, uh, anxiety, of like really connecting to characters, of thinking that the villain was actually turning into a good guy, that maybe this was his redemption Mm, story, really being affected when uh, shoots somebody out of the blue. Sure. And, And I did not see the tunnel coming. Yeah. And yeah. when that happened, I, I had I had a religious experience yeah. when the poster gets ripped. The the drops for it are are so small and so few that they really do not make waves of where they're going. Yeah. Yeah. Just hiding yep. that in in doing in looking over the script and prepping for today, mm-hmm. I was just appreciation. I just had appreciation over and over again for the script. Mm-hmm. You will know this. We've done, this is the ninth of the movies that we've done these deep dives on, and we did Jurassic Park, and we've done the Star Wars. I was so impressed by the construction of the of exactly that, of the yeah. flow and script here, unlike yeah. other ones that I've looked at. Yeah. Warden Samuel Norton. Again, uh, played by the great Bob Gunton, who has a huge list on IMBD of credits and just nothing that compares with this. Right. The second like the second movie that I'm kind of familiar with, it wasn't even a movie. He was on a TV show. I really liked Daredevil and he played a character on Daredevil. Right. Um, yeah. But this was just it, it feels a whole lot like Salieri and the gentleman that played uh Salieri, whose name's escaping me. Yeah, uh F. Murray Abraham. Where it's just you just hit gold and mm-hmm. that was your thing. Yep. Yeah, he nailed this role. Let's talk about nines then for a minute. Great. Uh, what's skinny on nines? So nines, my people, our people, uh, traditionally uh, often called the peacemakers. Um, we are very interested in things being calm and conflict-free. Like that's our big aversion is that we are trying to avoid conflict and we want things to go smoothly and for everyone to have a good time and and to never fight about anything. Conflict even being around conflict makes us uncomfortable. Um, and that that means that we are often the type of people who go along with what other people want because it's easier. Um, we go to sleep to ourselves because we're just trying to, to make things easier, make things comfortable in our spaces. And, um, and as we cap this series, we're talking about villainy arising from the unhealthy move to a security point. So when nines are in the groove, when they feel like they they know what's going on and they're they're comfortable in their space, nines can go and pick up some energy, some behavior from three. So we still get, we still have a lot of that that peacefulness and wanting things to be calm and easy. But at three, we pick up a little bit more desire for notoriety or some more. Uh, 
some like goal setting and getting things done. Uh, we pick up some of the energy that is available at three. And, and when we go to three in unhealthy ways, what we can pick up is sort of a mob boss mentality. In unhealthy three space, we want to get claim and notoriety with the least amount of work. We want to do the kind of work that will allow us to make the space around us more comfortable. And we want to, to use our influence and our power to make this space uh, a space that is good for me. Um, because at the end of the day, we still want peace and comfort and, and calmness around us. But in the unhealthy way, we might use our power, influence, energies to do bad things in order to make us comfortable. I was going to ask you why we should think Norton's a nine, but anyone familiar with the movie can probably see a lot of the yep. places we're going to be going. This is it. That's, yeah. Well, you want to get into this sucker? Let's do it. There must be a con like me in every prison in America. I'm the guy who can get it for you. Cigarettes, a bag of reefer, if that's your thing, a bottle of brandy to celebrate your kid's high school graduation, damn near anything within reason. Yes, sir, I'm a regular Sears and Roebuck. So when Andrew Dufresne came to me in 1949 and asked me to smuggle Rita Hayworth into the prison for him, I told him, no problem. Movie begins with Andy Dufresne being convicted of murdering his wife and her lover. And we see him entering Shawshank Prison, along with a dozen others. And the inmates all gather near the gates to heckle and intimidate the new fish. Fresh fish. Apparently, they are betting on who will cry first, and this is a big deal. And we meet Ellis Boyd Redding, who's played by the fantastic Morgan Freeman. And he is taking notes for a bunch of his friends as they place bets. And he bets on the six foot five banker looking dude walking into the prison. Tall drink of water. Is that what he calls him? Tall drink of water. <laughs> and we cut inside. And this is the introduction of our villain. We see a lineup of these new inmates. Dufresne, who's the hero, is standing a few inches taller than everyone else, and in strolls a colorless man in a gray suit and a church pin on his lapel. And he says, It's Mr. Hadley, he's captain of the guards. I'm Mr. Norton, the warden. You are convicted felons. That's why they've sent you to me. Rule number one, no blasphemy. I'll not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. The other rules, you'll figure out as you go along. Any questions? Before we get into the questions, anything pop for you just in that, that introductory line? It's nice and simple. It's cordial. It's uh, all of the information you need and a lot, all of the other stuff. We're, we're going to figure it out as we go. It's going to be fine. Like, I, <laughs> I feel like if he had said, don't worry about it, it would have worked. In this moment, it's, it's like, true. here's, here's the most important things you need to know for the next week of your stay here. I'm in charge. This guy's in charge of discipline. <laughs> You'll figure the rest out. That's exactly what I hear is I'm in charge. 
and yep. this guy's in charge of discipline. And yep. I think that's a great introduction for a nine villain who's going to outsource quite a bit of the violence that takes place in this prison to his staff. Well, and especially even even going a, a small step further, it's not just I'm in charge, but I'm the guy at the top, and you probably won't be dealing with me again. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm the guy at the top. This is the guy that I put in charge of you. Yeah. You mentioned that earlier about, uh, you want to talk about nines and energy on that front? Like how he is setting up, he's controlling his space and intentionally reducing the amount of interactions, potential conflicts he's going to experience with these new inmates, yeah? Well, because he doesn't want to be a guard. He's in charge of the prison. He's not in charge of the inmates. And as a leader, his best work is going to be done handing off responsibilities to the people underneath him. And that's mm-hmm. that's just a general leadership rule. It's yep. also a, a good rule for nines as leaders, healthy or unhealthy, good leadership is about delegating the work that you shouldn't be doing to other people. Mm -hmm. And here he is setting himself up in the very first minute we meet him that he is not the one that is going to be dealing with the day-to-day normal stuff that they're going to experience. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and realistically, like as as a nine, he doesn't want he doesn't want to do all of the minutia. He doesn't want he would really love to avoid that much work. Yep. And a lot of his villainy comes out in exactly that desire. I'm going to have other people do the work for me that uh, is going to profit me. Mm-hmm. It's not just hired staff, but it's even enslaving people who perhaps I have control over right. through various means. Right. A quick side note for anyone who is a parent listening to our podcast. This is Shawshank Redemption. Is there anything that might occur in Shawshank Redemption that probably isn't for kids? Oh, there's a few things. And I feel like if you haven't seen Shawshank Redemption, to know that, then you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Uh, An example of that would be the next line, because one of the cons in response to Norton buffoonishly steps forward and says, When do we eat? And Mr. Hadley, who apparently oversees all the guards, steps forward and he says, You eat when we say you eat. You shit when we say you shit. And you piss when we say you piss. You got that, you maggot dick motherfucker? Hadley then rams the tip of his club into the guy's belly, falls to his knees, and uh, there's your introduction to how prison, that's the rest of your life. You just realized what the rest of your life looks like if you're in that line. Right. And we know, we as an audience know what kind of prison this is. Yeah. Um, I, I have no love for prisons in general, um, but clearly this is being demonstrated as the people who are at this prison are treated as though they are punching bags they're they do they are not afforded common human decency exactly we're going to talk extensively about shawshank prison as a character in this movie but we in our last podcast we talked with shauna malia about justice and how there's two forms of justice in literature there's retributive justice where i punish you for something you've done 
And that's clearly the atmosphere, the attitude, what's going on with Shawshank. You are going to suffer because you are convicted felons. And right. now your ass belongs to me, as he'll say in a minute. There's another type of justice, which is restorative justice. I'm going to set something right. There are people in Shawshank who have honestly come to confess and repent the terrible things they've done have been, I mean, a big element of Red's story is have you been rehabilitated? Right. Um, that wasn't, that's, Shawshank isn't built to rehabilitate anyone right. under Norton. Right. So when Red goes in front of the uh, parole board, why would he have been rehabilitated? Not one thing at that prison is geared toward making a human being better. Right. Until Andy Dufresne shows up. Right. And Andy Dufresne does the job that somebody else should have been doing the entire time. Right. Which is awakening these human beings to their best selves as opposed to abusing them for his own profit. Right. Devilish character there in terms of Norton, yeah? Well, uh, this this scene displays everything that we need to know about who Norton is Mm -hmm. because he just said, this is my number two. Mm -hmm. And then the number two immediately punches someone in the stomach and says, your life is mine now. Yep. Standing in front of the guy who's in charge. That's everything we need to know about Norton. That outsourcing of violence, I think, is real interesting. Right. And I think this the villainous side of nines comes out here, both in terms of he, if he's at the low side of three, his hands didn't get dirty. This other guy is doing the work. Right. But it's also the case that he doesn't have to engage the physical conflict, yeah? Right. We've talked about Jabba, but Jabba does the same thing. Jabba not once pulls a gun on anyone physically... Right harm someone, he lets other people do it. Right. He lets Boba Fett freeze one of his lesser servants, Han Solo, in carbonite, and he hangs him on a wall. Right. But that is the henchman doing it. He outsources the violence, uh, kill Luke Skywalker by feeding him to the Rancor. The Rancor is going to do the violence. Right. He's going to throw um, that whole team of people into the Sarlacc pit. It's the Sarlacc pit that's going to do the violence. Right. all these instances. And that's a very mob bossy, you mentioned that earlier. It's a very mm-hmm. mob bossy way of, of being in the world and keeping control and yet not being the one who has to experience the actual violence through your own physicality. Right. There's, um, I have not even finished the first season of Daredevil, mm-hmm. the, the, the Netflix show. Mm-hmm. Because Wilson Fisk is such a, yeah, I'm I'm legitimately afraid of Vincent D'Onofrio and him <laughs> as as Fisk is, just, he is so good and scary to me that I can't watch the rest of it. But there there is an element of that to Fisk as well, mm-hmm. except for like Fisk raises the Annie a little bit by letting his anger out every once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's the unbridled nature of anger coming out for nines, especially for nines who want to be in charge of some type of criminal organization. And that's basically what Shawshank is Mm -hmm. at this point. 
if you lose control consistently, then you won't be in charge for very long. So someone who knows that their anger is is just like one snap away from from losing it would know that they actually have to outsource a lot of that work. Mm. Yep. Because if they lose control too much in front of people, then they will actually become vulnerable and lose their their status. Yep. So even even outsourcing the violence is it's not just about keeping the peace, but it's also about making sure that other people don't see you lose control. We see that on the hero side. We we spent a lot of time talking about uh, Bruce Banner in our MCU deep dive, and we did right. that all, obviously with with Marlena here recently. But the right. idea on a different with a different kind of personality, he's very concerned with not only not becoming violent, but exactly what you were saying, not being seen as somebody who would be violent. Right. Which is also part of where the the three comes in. The unhealthy three aspect is mm-hmm. I need people to see me a certain way. And yeah. I, I don't know that nines, average to healthy nines are as concerned about how they're seen in that way. Mm-hmm. But but bring in those three aspects and, and your image becomes a big part of how you make decisions. Yeah, if you're secure and go dark, that's where it is. You right. have the leverage. He cl- This is the thing about Norton, and it's a, true of a lot of our villains, is he clearly has security right, and leverage over everyone in front of him. Right. And so let's see what your heart's like, and yeah. then it comes out. Yep. Says to the men. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Anything there? Again, it's super basic. It's here's the information you need to know. We'll deal with the rest later. It's also, I, I love that his character is the type of person who would pair religiosity mm-hmm. and discipline together. Mm-hmm. Because I, th- I think that he, like as, as a nine-ish person who would be in charge of a prison and also be a bad person, that's a great combination of terrible, of, of aspects that when brought together work out terribly. Yeah. Religion here is about controlling other people, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. this is a toxic, toxic use of it. A lot of the reasons that some people rightly push against their religious upbringing is because the religion they grew up in was used in toxic ways. Religion right. is just a tool. It's like it's a it's systems, it's philosophies. All things can get nearly all things can get weaponized and and clearly that's what is taking place here. Right. And his safe is behind a, a what is that called? Needlepoint yeah. thing that says Oh gosh, I don't even remember His exactly. Judgment cometh and that right soon. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like it even this simple saying is turning judgment into a weapon. Mm-hmm. And that weapon is being used for control. Yeah. He is the judge, yeah. I mean, in some ways it, 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 he's been handed these convicts, but there's nothing but 
I mean, ju- these are lesser, these are not men right. in front of him. Right. His attitude towards everyone that enters the prison is that they are subhuman. Right. We'll see that in a handful of places, but. I don't know if we can display this with other nines, but I think that Norton, if you were able to have a conversation with him about this, I think that he would legitimately view himself as more as a steward. Yep. I think like that's I, right. I, I don't think he would call himself a judge. I think he would say that he is a steward of God's judgment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which also right. helps him helps him keep his inner peace by saying it's not me deciding this. Yeah. I'm just passing down what has already been decided. Yep. And discipline is the way that we get there. Yep. Of all things in all of our villains, we haven't come across this trope or this character, but Samuel Norton is the devil. He is the one who exercises the judgment upon sinners and he controls a space in which you're exactly right. He is the steward of that space. Yeah. And the space that Norton oversees is hell. And we all yeah. know it's hell. And yeah. we could give the list of all the things that take place in hell, which show you this is not the place that has any life inside of it. Right. Uh, we did see one other character that was devilish, and he had the same job. And it was Chilton in uh, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Same kind of trope of mm-hmm. overseeing hell and what do you do with the people inside? Yeah. Chilton, I think, is is much more upfront about his image obsession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I I would yeah. I don't know that I would call Chilton a nine, but Pro- probably not a nine. I, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's it's the same kind of role. Notice the abuse of religious uh the abuse of religiosity there. Chilton put on TV preachers in order to torture. Right, yeah. Same same kind of trope. The And we've seen this, we could name a handful of, I like this as a trope, the abusive religious person, because mm-hmm. I, I imagine it's the case that given a world like ours, this is actually one of the villainous kinds of people that many of us have actually encountered and felt. Religion is so powerful. So when somebody uses it for horrid, self-serving, toxic reasons, we right. feel it. Right. Annie Wilkes had that side when we talked about her. Yeah. The, I mean, we could probably go through the long list of evil doers who are wearing, you know, religious garbs. Right. But the one that came to my mind was in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, Frollo. Yeah. That's the um, one I'm thinking of, too. And then recently, I've been going through Game of Thrones again, and the High Sparrow has that element to him of a real well-written bad guy. Mm. using religion in order to to torture some of the characters. Sure. You can see it in his eyes because they picked the exact <laughs> right actor for him. <laughs> yeah, they did. Right. You can tell that guy's got some shady business going on. That's a good use of that, you know, and it just comes out. We know the person who says, here's what the Bible says, and it has nothing to do what's with what's in the Bible. It has right. everything to do with, I'm going to control you and abuse you because I'm an unhealthy person. Right. And that's who Norton is. Yeah. And I'm going to do it from the guise of legitimate or not thinking that I am just passing down something that's already been written. Yeah. yeah. There it is. And we know that if Norton is the devil... 
Shawshank's hell. And right. once you once you once you see that, it, it actually is pretty clear. There's worms in the food. There's sexual advances in the showers. There's gang rapes. There's guards allowed to murder. There's no music. There's no color really. Uh, mm. One of the things that was intentional was everything green is always on the outside of Shawshank. Whenever they're when they're on the roof, you can see green fields past yeah. the walls, but nothing oh, is yeah. green inside. Mm. Uh, I like that. Dehumanizing conditions. So dehumanizing, I would love your thoughts on this. It seems to me that everything that Shawshank is, even though that Norton is a steward of Shawshank, everything that is terrible about Shawshank is flowing from his inner life. Yeah. And so Shawshank almost is a character. It's like in Tolkien's universe, Middle Earth is a character. Mm -hmm. Like we can feel, or Mordor is a character. Right. And it's overseen by Sauron. Here, Shawshank is overseen by Norton, and everything that takes place there flows from the heart of this, you know, this demonic personality. Yeah. Right. We see that in this opening scene. We see it with the guys. I mean, the thing with Red and his buddies who are betting on who's going to cry first, we know that Red is going to be a good guy. Yeah. Right. And all those dudes are going to be good guys. Right. But this is how they cope but, with being in hell. Yeah. They are becoming worse human beings. Right. And it's just flowing. The other character that struck me this way was Scar in The Lion King. When Scar begins overseeing, you know, that domain. Mm -hmm. What once was a, essentially a paradise turns into yeah. a barren wasteland. Yeah. There's a character that comes in later in the movie. His name's Tommy. He says something about his past prison, prison experience. You've done a stretch in Cashman, right? Yeah, yeah, that was an easy piece of time, let me tell you. Weekend furloughs, work programs, not like here. Right. It's a real quick aside. It's a, I, like I forgot that he had said that, but it's entirely a this place is different. Right. Anything else on Shawshank emerging from Norton? and seeing his villainy in the in the atmospheres he creates. I think it would be important to note that Norton didn't create Shawshank. Uh, Brooks, in fact, mentions that like he's he, Brooks, the librarian. Mm -hmm. He had been there for mm -hmm. 50 years and he had seen six different wardens come through. Mm -hmm. So as much as Shawshank the, as, as much as the character of Shawshank flows out of the character of Norton, it's also part of it. I think it works both ways. I think this is a really important nine thing because if, if Norton had been placed into another setting that wasn't terrible, he might have adapted to that place. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's adjusting as a nine. He's adjusting to his atmosphere just as much as he is creating the atmosphere. Right. God, that's good. So, so it it there's there's a give and take. There's a there's a flow from Norton to Shawshank and from Shawshank to Norton. This is also part of hell as well, of what mm -hmm. hell is. It's it's not just like a place that's terrible. It's 
like it changes people as much as people change. Like, so I, yeah. I think that, that Norton is becoming, has become the devil because of Shawshank as much as Shawshank has become hell because of Norton. He has yep. let it become a terrible place. Like Hadley probably hasn't worked there for longer than Norton. Mm-hmm. Or if he has, he probably wasn't as bad as he was under a different person. Yeah. But also, Norton became more and more corrupted because Shawshank is the type of place that corrupts people. That seems much more realistic than this person is just the black hat. Right. The actual breaking bad of a villain matters, and that's likely what is taking place over time. Right, especially for a nine, because he will absorb the energy of the people around him. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is one thing that, that is forefront in teachings about nines is that we, uh, we merge with other people because we don't yeah. want to stir the pot. We don't want to cause conflict. We don't want to shake things up. So we just go along with what other people are doing and what other people want. And as an unhealthy person, as a villainous person who is in this role of being in charge, he will continue to find himself doing things that he might not have in another setting. Yeah. It's a good warning for Dines and being aware of systemic problems. Right. The systemic problem, if not addressed, is going to begin to take its toll on you. Yeah. I mean, would you talk about that real quick in terms of Nines needing to engage action at those levels? where you know something is wrong and yet the temptation is going to be to be quiet. Well, and not not even just to be quiet, but to 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 not stir the pot, to to not assert yourself, to not enter into spaces where you call attention to yourself or where you are creating conflict. Like that's 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 our MO is to mm-hmm. avoid that space. But in spaces where something is wrong going with the flow is actually worse than the conflict that could come out of it because just like Norton you find yourself becoming worse by going along with it some of his villainy comes out in the fact that he's defending these systems though like there is a very healthy person who is bringing life to his prison it's probably making his prisoners better Mm mm-hmm and yet he gets angry because at the change that is coming right yeah. because because not just the change like it's it's so nines we we don't like change but more importantly we don't like disruption to what is familiar mm-hmm. disruption to what is comfortable and easy norton has a very easy life especially at the point when one of his inmates is helping him embezzle money. Yeah. And, and the threat is not just about change. It's about disrupting his comfort. It's -hmm. about robbing him of his peace. And, and here is a perfect example of why peace is not always good. It's a both and there then. Yeah. Yeah. It's both the Shawshank is taking its toll and effect on Norton, mm-hmm. and then he's getting comfortable there. Yes. So and as then it's yeah. solidifying. Yep. This is 
so the the traditional sort of sin downfall passion of nines is sloth mm-hmm. and this is one of the things that i think about most when i think about sloth is is the slow decay of not caring about things that matter yep like i i have this visual in my head of like it, it's easy to to sort of picture the stereotype of a couch potato, but then imagine the the person on the couch slowly becoming one with the couch. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the true danger of of nine slothfulness is it's not that you won't ever do anything again, but but it's actually that you'll you'll cease to be a real person. Mm-hmm. And and that's what is happening to Norton. It's it's his piece is not just about how well he's taken care of or the or the position that he's in, but it's actually that he's he's slowly becoming one with the evil that is Shawshank Prison. Might be one of the reasons that nines don't get a lot of screen time. It's hard to shoot sins of omission. Right. But that's exactly it. As Sloth is, I don't care about the things that matter, and so I'm taking a step back away from them. Right. Famous story that happened 30 or 40 years ago. Psychologists went nuts on it where the woman was, you'll know this, was was stabbed outside of her apartment complex. Mm, yeah. But didn't die, and she was, like, screaming, bleeding out there. And the murderer came back by to see what had happened if, if police had come. Nobody had come, right. and the woman was still alive, and so he jumped out and with his knife again and killed her. Right. And apparently there were like 200 witnesses. Right. And, and nobody did anything. Sl- and it feels, that's a good image in my mind of sloth. It's it's the, the omission taking place there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he oversees the space, and yet still, I suppose, is it because he's a steward that he has some excuses for not doing more that he could tell himself? I mean, I, uh, there's lots of ways that sins of omission might occur if I can say, look, that's not my job. Um, I'm not responsible for that. I'm just overseeing the system you gave me. I can begin spinning out excuses for why I'm not engaging in making things better. Sure. Well, and even it, especially, so this will get into a little bit my my dislike of of the prison system in general, but especially in this setting like he's not he's not doing a bad job as far as prison prison wardens are concerned okay he's doing a bad job as far as like taking care of humans and doing real justice is concerned yeah but for a prison warden this is kind of what you might expect yeah, I see that. That's a tri- that's a tricky one. I was talking to Kelly about this. She was uh, teaching on the Civil War recently. I'm a Civil War buff, and I can't think of anyone that the North executed after the war except for one guy, the one person that they put to death. It wasn't Robert E. Lee. It wasn't Jefferson Davis. It wasn't any of the generals. The one person they put to death was the guy who oversaw the POW camp. Sure. And before he was executed, he said... I was just following orders. Right. Well, and, and of course that language rings through history with with incarceration mm-hmm. of people. Right. And and I I would want to take a step back because I think that that brings us too far into like 
Nazis just doing their Nazi soldiers just following orders. I think that Norton, I don't know that he would say he's following orders, but I think he might say that he's just doing his job. And his job is to accept prisoners and keep them alive. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. There's the this is another trope. Yeah. The there's a ton of characters of this sort who oversee a space mm-hmm. and they are the devil over that space. Sure. Um it is Miss Hannigan running the orphanage for Annie. Yeah. Or it's Nurse Ratchet overseeing the cuckoo's nest. Sure. Or it's I mean on the Nazi side, it's Amon Goth overseeing you know, the, the camps and Schindler's list, or here's, here's a one that was popping for me was Miranda Priestley is overseeing the wonderful, very successful fashion magazine, but she's the devil. Sure. And you know how, you know, she's the devil It's cause she was wearing Prada and, uh, and, and it's <laughs> called the movie's called the devil wears Prada. And so, you know, she's the devil. Sure. Yeah. Ramsey Bolton is the devil overseeing Winterfell and, and Sauron's the devil overseeing Mordor. It just these the the overseer of this space yeah. and what's coming out of their heart infects everything in this toxic way. True. The, the, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but I, that was what hit me. I think that's calling attention to that is good and important because it'll show us you don't see Norton actually engaging in acts of evil. Yep. Sauron engages in acts of evil. True. Not uh, He's not a nine, though. Right. Well, and and this is... So th- the way that a lot of these characters are portrayed, they themselves are perpetuating the abuse of the people under their care. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the one from Game of Thrones was the one in particular that I was thinking about. Ramsey? Yeah, Ramsey Bolton. Yeah. Um, he comes to a good place in his toxicity over overwhelms it. So so these characters, these are all really good example of people who are actively perpetuating the evil that they're embodying. Mm-hmm. Whereas Norton, and I think this is this is where the nineness becomes a little more clear. Norton is allowing the evil to be yeah. to exist. That's a good, I think that's an excellent distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of his, like it's, it's coming out of his character, but his character is about creating comfort for himself. Yeah. And this, and the way that we do that is like, make sure that they stay in line, but you make sure that they stay in line. Yeah. We will see that identical move by the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, where he has very abusive, you know, they're they're kind of these nurse-like, not nurse, uh, nun characters who abuse the the prisoners, the people he takes prisoner. Real similar move there. Boom. I want to call attention to the hero because the the way that Andy Dufresne ends up being a foil here. Is, is interesting if we elevate Norton as the primary character, mm-hmm. then obviously his counterpart is Dufresne. And at the outset, we, you know, we watch this large man who's severely beaten for crying, who's left on the, the floor and dies the next day. Um, we see people who profit over him, over his tears. And 
there's a sense that when there's news that comes out that he's died, that hopelessness takes over. When Haywood enthusiastically says, Boy, I sure do love that winning horse of mine, though. I believe I owe that boy a great big sloppy kiss when I see him. Why don't you give him some of his cigarettes instead? <laughs> hey, Tyrell, you pulling for me duty this week? How's that horse of mine doing anyway? And the man who serves in the infirmary says, Dead? Hadley busted his head up pretty good. Doc had already gone home for the night. Old bastard laid there to this moment. Right in, hell, it wasn't nothing we could do. Then this just sense of hopelessness drops on the cafeteria. Right. And one person is able to cut through it. What was his name? And it's Dufresne, who hadn't talked to anyone. What'd you say? I was just wondering if anyone knew his name. What the fuck do you care, new fish? Doesn't fucking matter what his name was, he's dead. Immediate humanization of not only a prisoner, but a but someone who had passed. Mm-hmm. And the movement of humanizing, which is just gonna just gonna leak out of Dufresne over and again of how do I humanize the people in front of me? Right. Is it seems to me the contrast to to Warren Norton's mm-hmm. character. In the in the analogy of this being a sort of like this Chashank being hell, I really like thinking about the people that are there by choice and the people that are there because they've been put there. Mm-hmm. And and the ones who are there by choice display evil. And the ones who are there by circumstance display a descent toward mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. So like Haywood just moments ago was dehumanizing this this man because like in the act of betting on them on who's going to cry first mm-hmm. it, it that is an act of dehumanization mm-hmm. when they're when they're just standing there looking at all these new guys coming in and deciding which one is going to break they're removing some a, a level of their humanity mm-hmm. and and that's the place that that they sort of hang out and then when he finds out that he died all of a sudden we see, oh, Haywood isn't a terrible person. There is at least a glimmer of remorse. But the hopelessness that exists already in Shawshank, that takes over. Like yep. that's that's the thing that arises in that moment. And then like the true, the the hero, the one person who we know for sure literally does not belong there. Like everyone else we assume has at least done some of the bad things that they're there for. Mm -hmm. And Andy hasn't. And so like the one person who's clean is able to lift everyone else up a little bit. The Jesus imagery is going to be all over this movie. If we want to go down that path. Correct. (laughs) The hell imagery of it being a place of hopelessness is is interesting on that. The Dante, when picturing hell in the inferno, says there's a sign over the door as as he enters, and it says, "Abandon hope, all ye who enter." Right. And what does it look like for the person who's fully alive and healthy to enter those spaces? Ah, that's yeah. why it's. This is why it's a great movie. <laughs> it's, just, it's a stellar setup for deep conversation. 
do you see, I don't know if we've already answered this question, but do you, where do we see Norton's nineness in the character of Shawshank here with the worms and the beatings and the things we see up front? We're going to see some of his villainous side later with slavery mm-hmm. and profiting off that. Yeah. But here, do you see Norton's nineness? There is very little attention to details. Oh. He has abdicated responsibility for making sure this is a nice prison to all of the people underneath him. Yeah, abdication's a good word. Yeah. So there's there's worms in the food, and if he knows about that, he certainly doesn't care because it's not something that it it doesn't matter to him. Yeah. Because the and and this is this is part of the portrayal of prison culture, but but they don't matter enough for him to expend the energy to make sure that they have good food. Mm, yep. When they leave here, they can deal with that on their own. But here, they're going to get enough food to make sure that they stay alive. And I'm not going to put any more effort into it. Mm-hmm. That's good. Because it, it would take effort. Yep. I love the image of the worm here. The worm is kind of a microcosm of everything. Here's this horrible, horrible thing. I'm picking out worms out of my food. And then yeah. suddenly somebody next to me says, Are you, are you going to eat that? I hadn't planned on it. Do you mind? Right. He takes it and he feeds the worm to a broken crow that's in his jacket. That's nice and ripe. Right. Such a great turn. Mm-hmm. Didn't see that coming. There's lots of things you don't see coming in this movie. <laughs> Talking just a little bit further about Andy as the foil, we see him trying to create art in Shawshank from mm-hmm. the beginning with mm-hmm. ordering a rock hammer. The other inmates are ordering booze and cigarettes and cards with naked ladies on them, and he comes in and says, I need a rock hammer. Yeah. Super interesting on that front. He's giving names to the dead. We see him in one of the principal scenes in the movie engaging the guards and advocating for their financial health while they're on the roof. Right. At potential cost to himself. He's going to get thrown off the roof for engaging the guards and making sure that they don't have to pay extra taxes. Right. And all he asks for is three beers apiece for each of my co-workers. <laughs> co-workers, get him. That's rich, ain't it? I think a man working outdoors feels more like a man if you can have a bottle of suds. It's only my opinion, sir. The guard makes fun of him for calling them co-workers, but he's going well beyond co-workers. He says a man feels like more of a man. Yeah. Humanizing. Yeah. Yep. And... Red knows it. The monologue that Freeman gives. And that's how it came to pass that on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in the spring of 49 wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning drinking icy cold Bohemia-style beer, courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Pick up while it's cold, ladies. The colossal prick even managed to sound magnanimous. 
We sat and drank with the sun on our shoulders and felt like free men. Hell, we could have been tarring the roof of one of our own houses. We were the lords of all creation. As for Andy, he spent that break hunkered in the shade, a strange little smile on his face, watching us drink his beer. You could argue he'd done it to curry favor with the guards, or maybe make a few friends among us cons. Me, I think he did it just to feel normal again, if only for a short while. That's a dude that has no authority, no power. We'll find out later, you know, he can't even pee without asking someone else for permission. Right. But here he is sitting and he said, I am the Lord of all creation. Ah! Yeah. Well, in the, um, in the past, we discussed Andy and Red as uh, we typed Andy as a five. Yep. And red is a nine. And we're not going to go into that a ton with them in this one because we're focusing on, on Warden Norton. But that's, that's in the episode on the Harmony Triad, by the way, if you want to go back and hear that. Uh, but we, uh, with Andy as a five, I love this, like that particular moment of him stepping out on a limb and saying, I have expertise that will help you. I will, I will step into a leadership role in this, like that, that move toward a a little bit of eight to use his knowledge to sort of take control of the whole situation Mm -hmm. and, and everyone benefits from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, again, Jesus imagery and, and whatnot, but, the move for him of of holding back all of his own stuff, but stepping into places where he can use his own experience, knowledge, expertise for every for someone else's benefit. Like there's a there's a great five representation there. Mm-hmm. Real healthy five. Yeah. Yep. Once the warden learns of Andy's skills, monetary skills, understanding of of money. He begins to arrange things. Not only does he set up Andy being able to take a desk job, not in the laundry, but he sets up a spot for him in the prison library, and then he begins sending his staff there to get their taxes done. He is feeling things out here, yeah? Mm-hmm. It, it's very intentional and takes a lot of time, and he is not just jumping in and saying, hey, I'm going to have you run my immoral schemes. Right. Well, there's, there's some testing the waters, but there's also, he, he is crafting a, a criminal enterprise. Mm -hmm. Like mob bosses don't put ads in the paper (laughs) for people that they need, (laughs) you know? And like, like when an opening happens, they don't interview people. It's like, like you figure out, who you can trust, yeah, and you move them to positions that you need them in. He, <laughs> I, I, and and all of it in the most sort of indirect, non-aggressive ways possible. Mm-hmm. He reveals nothing about his plans or his even, and and this is like I don't I don't know that he's 
planning as far ahead as Andy becoming his accountant. Yeah. I think that he sees potential there and he wants to see what's going to happen if he moves Andy to a position where he can start helping out the guards. Yeah. And also doing it in a way that endears Andy to him. So there's a little bit of three, there's a little bit of nine in this, in a lot of these moves and the nine comes through in the non-aggressive way that he's doing it. Mm -hmm. And the three comes through in the sort of manipulation of these tools. So he sees these people as tools that can help him accomplish his goals. Yep. And he just needs to move them around and figure out where they're going to work. That was the thing that really popped for me in their relationship. The relationship Mm -hmm. between Norton and Dufresne is that, Norton as a nine is an attachment type. Three sixes and nines attach when engaging the world. And this is very much what's taking place with he and Dufresne. Uh, And he does see Dufresne not as a human being. This is a tool to get things done. Right. And, and the, the move to the library is, is the first step in simply figuring out if Andy is going to be able to do the work that he might want from him in the future. Yeah. Very slow. Yeah. And incredibly non-aggressive. Yeah. Like it's always testing the waters and it's very rarely saying out loud, this is what I'm doing. There's a couple of lines that strike me as positioning and seeking leverage as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Once the warden learns of Andy's skills and 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 creates the space, he arranges a meeting in Andy's cell. And it appears as though it's just one of these common, we were doing an inspection. Um, I would bet money, though, that most of the people that Andy interacts with on a regular basis have never had a one-on-one with a warden. Right. Right. Norton is... In fact, pointing out places that he wants his guards to go, but he's walking directly towards Andy's cell. Right. Enters. He's trailed by his right-hand man. Hadley is with him. Andy rises. Norton gives him a nod. And then uh, Hadley starts, you know, tossing the cell, moving things around, looking for contraband. Um, And the whole time Norton is looking at Andy... I, th- I think in the script it says that he's looking for a wrong glance or a nervous blink. Yeah. And then he takes the Bible out of Andy's hand, and Norton pleasantly says, Pleased to see you reading this. Any favorite passages? Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. Mark 1335. Always like that one. By the way, as a pastor... You should never trust people who can quote chapter and verse. This yep. is a this is not a good person. <laughs> this is <laughs> I study the Bible for a living. Like if anybody can quote chapter and verse, they're way too obsessive. They're probably using it to they're the devil. That's why it is. Only the <laughs> devil quotes chapter and verse. <laughs> Norton flips it and he says, But I prefer I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John chapter eight, verse twelve. Before moving on. Why has he picked that passage? I feel like there's a lot that could be said here, but some of the things that stick out to me is that, A, I think that 
Norton believes that he legitimately believes this mm-hmm. and that this is one of the most important aspects of quote unquote Christian faith mm-hmm. and, and reading the Bible is that, that this is the way to, this is the one path to goodness mm-hmm. is by, by following these rules and B, I think that from that belief, a lot of people get, throughout history, a lot of people pick up something that, like, they take it to a place where so long as I believe that this is true about me, then the things that I do stem from that place so that's that's a really really nice and tactful and very niney way to say a lot of people think that because they are they call themselves christian that their behavior comes from a good place Mm -hmm. someone like ward norton because he believes so firmly in the bible and the salvation of the lord and whatever that he is a good person and is going to heaven. Yeah. And people who don't and do bad things, it comes out of doing bad things comes out of being a not following the Lord. Doing good things comes out of following the Lord. So, so long as I position myself in this camp, then the things that I do are good. And it's it's a blanket excuse for bad behavior. Mm. I see so much going on here, and I, I don't want to go off too much. One, the three side, I think, is all over this. He's sure. in security, and he wants to appear as though he is the religious guy with the you know the button on his lapel. Mm. I think going down a step deeper where you're at, his opening line of "Put your faith in the Lord; your ass belongs to me" is exact all over this passage. It's you trust in some other world. You should live in the heavenly future, but here and now I'm in total control of you, especially if you pacify and become the sort of person who puts all their energy investment somewhere else that doesn't obstruct what I'm doing here. The people that in my experience, religious people are most antagonistic towards other religious people who are actually doing things in the here and now. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. experiences fantastic opposition from the religious people in his community. Right. The last thing that hits me here is that Marx said that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's the hope. Yeah. It's yeah, like, I, think I so really too. hope that if you embrace this, you'll become more benign and compliant. And, and if, if somehow you embrace this religiosity that I'm handing you, then that actually makes me a better person. Yep. Because I've saved your soul. That's exactly it. Yeah. What's Funny here, and again, if we want to read the Jesus metaphor into Dufresne, it's very similar to Jesus 
the stories of Jesus where he has religious people quoting chapter and verse to him, Mm -hmm. but he is actually the target of those passages. And so Dufresne in this sphere is the light that has come into Shawshank. Right. And when he exemplifies that light, for example, playing um, the marriage of Figaro for the masses who awaken and rise and are enlivened because of it, here is light and they know it's light. Guess who gets really angry? Right. The, the person who thinks he's the light. Ooh. <laughs> I, I, I think that is another aspect of, of why Norton chooses this passage. Andy specifically chooses a passage where he is referring to Norton as the master. Yep. And then Norton turns it and says, I am the light of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think that Norton would out loud say, I am your salvation. (gasps) Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. But, but there is that undertone of this whole conversation that they're both referring to Norton as the master yep. in this scenario. Yeah, because your ass belongs to me. Right. Mm. I hear you're good with numbers. How oh, nice. Man should have a skill. Assessment and condescension and utility, yeah? And we're also starting to see why exactly Warden Norton is in this particular cell at this particular time for a task that he probably doesn't do on his own ever. That's it. Yep. Now we know why Norton is actually here. All sorts of people that Norton probably could go to, but there's a control element that Norton has over his prisoners. Mm -hmm. The leverage, I think, is interesting in this scene. Well, it's also practical if if he were to go to an accountant he would have to pay an accountant (laughs) but here he has this slave that he can get it to to do the work for free and it i imagine an accountant might say no to his shady well i mean norton's potentially smart enough to know to to play that out to to you know read the room a little before go he the, tells his accountant that he's doing shady things. Go to make sure he better call Saul. Right. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Hadley looks over. He says, It's pretty clean. Some contraband here, but nothing getting a twist over. Norton is looking for leverage, though, I think. And he turns to the poster. Can't say I approve of this. But I suppose exceptions can be made. Right. I think that's a a great double line. It's both, you know, it, there's all sorts of of you might get found out in the scene going on, but it's also the case I think he's like I will allow you to have this poster because I'm the master of the house and the master of the house is in charge and so I can grant favors to those who are obedient. And on the flip side, on on the other side of that same coin, it would be beneficial to both of them if he had found something worth being contraband mm-hmm. because then Norton has leverage over him. Yep. There it is. Yeah. He's, he's sort of hoping to find something bad so that he can offer mercy. <laughs> it's in his hand. Oh, wait, fool. What a fool. <laughs> also, also just a me being a stickler. I've, 
I've cut holes in books before. Uh-huh. You would feel that rock hammer rattling around inside that book. <laughs> Let the listener understand. Took me right out of the movie, movie for a second. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Anywho. This is a great line, though, as he, ha- as he hands the Bible back. I almost forgot. I hate to deprive you of this. Salvation lies within. Yes, sir. And on a second viewing, we all, yeah, you kind of jump up and go, ah! Yeah. So great. Yeah. We hear the fantastic Morgan Freeman voiceover. Toss and sales was just an excuse. Truth is, Norton wanted to size Andy up. Andy's led into Norton's office where the warden is doing paperwork. He looks up at the frame over the safe his judgment cometh and that right soon by the way ain't nobody in the world does that as needlepoint that's what is that (laughs) awesome is what it is no it's it's and it is the exact kind of thing i expect a terrible warden religious like Someone exactly like Norton yeah. has a wife. Yeah, that's and right. And <laughs> like in what year is this? 1940? It's 50s and 60s. 50s. But so yeah. like like 1950, someone like Norton has a wife who needlepointed this in church group. Yeah, I, I've worked with uh <laughs> I've worked at a church for a long time that that has the type of people who probably made needle points like this in the fifties. I did not grow up in that church. And so I, I retract for some <laughs> TJ does have far more experience in said spaces. <laughs> and it's like it, the, the idea of elevating judgment. Yeah. Judgment again, to talk about justice, judgment is about justice. What do you do? in these situations where you judge something to be wrong, do you punitively punish it or do you restore it? And judgment in the Bible is about restoration, and yet it's so often here it is in the warden's office as almost a mantra. His, I wonder if this is about him. Does he think, oh, that's my job. I am to judge and that right soon to make it immediate. It goes alongside I'm the lie of the world. I mean, his self-understanding being blown up. Is this about him? Uh, I, I would suggest that it's, that's part of it, but it's also tied into this sense of, we could get pretty far in the weeds here of, of bad religiosity, but the, like, I think it's tied to the, idea within this kind of religious understanding about Christianity that soon God is going to come and judge all of the evil and we are going to escape to heaven. We, the good, the saints are going to escape to heaven. Right. And so this hell that I am overseeing it can be as bad as it needs to be because God's judgment is going to come and save me from it and all of the good people mm-hmm. as well. And you should understand that God's judgment is coming because you need to get your life right. Right. Yeah, it's a focus it's very much a focus outward. Yeah. 
And if only you would understand that God's judgment is coming for you, then you would stop all your evil ways. It is the case that he seems oblivious of his own moral failures and toxicity until the end. Right. And we'll talk about how things end for him because I think what ends up happening is once he has that revelation, then it plays out in a very nine-ish kind of way. Yep. Agreed. Norton says, My wife made that in church group. Very nice, sir. Does Andy think that's pretty? No, of course not. (laughs) No one thinks that's pretty, except for Norton's wife. And Norton knows that this isn't a place to really sit down and talk. He changes the subject. Do you enjoy working in the laundry? No, sir, not especially. Well, perhaps we can find something more befitting a man of your education. Still non-direct, not aggressive, mm-hmm. not confrontational in any way, and sort of like just, just a slow move and saying, okay. Like like there's a there's a befriending element, mm-hmm. but there's also a a positioning. Like this yep. is this is him moving him into a position that is better for everyone, mm-hmm. but entirely non-aggressive and without even remotely communicating exactly what he's thinking. He doesn't even tell him that he's going to be doing taxes for the staff for the nope. other guards. He just that, puts him in a room and then lets it. Let's him figure it out later, yeah? According to the audience, that might not have anything to do with Norton at all. Yeah. Which is a a very nine-ish kind of way of handling things uh-huh. is to work from behind the scenes. Yeah. So he positions Andy in this place as a favor to Andy. Mm-hmm. This is better for everyone because you don't belong in the laundry room. You're smart enough to work in the library. And then all of a sudden, the guards are coming to him for tax help, which is not even at all what they talked about. Yep. So, like, there's there's a posi- the positioning here is a lot of behind the scenes work. Does Norton know that Andy knows exactly what he's doing? Oh, I assume no. Oh. I, I assume that nobody knows when I'm moving, manipulating them around. So I, I, I just have to assume that Norton is, thinks that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that Norton thinks that he's the the like as the person in charge, he's also the wisest, smartest in the room. Yeah, that's I think I, that's right. Yeah, and it, it's a general superiority complex. Dufresne's intelligence perhaps has been set on the to the side. He's a tool. He's not mm-hmm. a human being. Right. When Dufresne's intelligence steps into the warden's space, he gets furious. Right. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Exactly. Yeah. I, I think the, the warden is content to believe that Andy has no idea what's going on. Yeah. Is that controlling his own inner life? It's like, this is what I want to believe to make me feel good about everything. If he were actually to spend a few minutes and view Andy as a human being, then this probably would have played out very differently. Yeah. But I don't think he would be a prison warden if he were doing, if we were going to go down that path anyway. Tragic flaw, pal. (laughs) (laughs) That might bite you in the ass. Um, The favor here, I'm going to move you from the laundry into the library. It's another 
favor, you want to write letters to Congress to get more funds. There's another favor. So yep. there's, a, there's a piling up of I will do these things for you going on here as well. And notice that it's not actual work for the warden. Yes. Let me do you this favor by you not working in the laundry anymore. Yeah. Warden, like all he has to do is tell someone that that's what's happening. Right. But it, but it is significant leverage over this tool in front of him. Right. Right. The letters in particular. The, the warden literally says that he is not going to do any work right. for this. But he will let Andy write the letters if he wants to. Mm. Well, Andy begins working in the prison library, and he's doing the staff's taxes, which eventually includes even the wardens. Again, it's that slow move. There's a lot mm-hmm. of slow time. They, they mention this a handful of times in terms of how things work slowly over time, especially at the end when we, when, uh, we hear about geology and the study of time. Right. But that eventually leads Dufresne to work in the office, and he has ownership, and he's sending those letters, and he's building the library, and the state finally responds, and he sends them some crates filled with books and records, one of which happens to be Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, which we spoke about extensively in our Villainous 4 podcast. Yeah, we did. This is just coming up as one of those things, one of those, those pieces of heaven in American film. <laughs> <laughs> Andy's invited into the prison office to clean up the crates, delivered to the library, and he decides to lock the door, turn on the amps, and play Sala Aria, which is a short duet in Figaro. One of the great scenes in movie history. Yeah, spectacular. Flips on those PAs, turns on Mozart. It goes out over the loudspeakers to men who haven't heard music in decades. Yeah. All riveted. This is the most obvious Jesus scene for me Mm. because there's a point where the movement of the camera is sweeping over these men whose hearts are all, they're all, their, their heads are lifted towards the sunlight and it eventually works its way into the infirmary and all the men who are in hospital beds rise up Mm -hmm. and come to the light and that image of the light of the world perhaps is washing over this in some ways. But clearly, Dufresne is offering this heavenly experience. And again, it's the voices of two females. And women are not part of this. Women don't appear in this movie, aside Mm -hmm. from in the grocery store. And there's a, 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 you know, and Dufresne's wife. And I think there's a woman who's on the parole board, the the board that's deciding things at the end. But not much going on there. Right. Except for these women. And these women take over this scene Mm -hmm. and red says it explicitly but i i i love that like it's in italian and there's very little chance that anyone there knows italian yeah (laughs) and like like it's not about knowing what they're saying Mm -hmm. it's not about understanding it's about having a moment of real beauty in the midst of a place that has no beauty the line here is crushing in its beauty. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. 
I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. Shakespeare would give a compliment to that line. Right. That is gold. That's right. just, that's just, right. <laughs> that is, the, one of the reasons is, is, in my mind, is the greatest film ever. It's, it's moments like this one are simply unique in film history. Yeah. In terms of just cutting you with the humanity of the moment. There's so much here. This is a this is a thing in art where you you provide the audience with green over and over and over and over and over again, and then suddenly red is introduced and it just pops. Yeah, sure. And the the contrast here: women's voices, mm-hmm. Mozart, the color, the invitation into something wholly different, and all these men are in hell, and then suddenly heaven breaks in. Ah, such a rich image of that experience. Right. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. And then we see the warden for the first time in the movie get mad. Yeah. (laughs) Starts banging on the door. Red says... It pissed the warden off something awful. He is infuriated by this. And that showcases what's actually in his heart. This is the most liberating moment in the movie. And the man who's in charge of the prison is outraged. Yeah. Why does this make the warden so upset? Well, for one thing, he's a bad person and he wants everyone <laughs> who's there to not have a good experience. <laughs> he doesn't think they deserve it. Uh, but I, I think the the biggest part of this is that something is happening in his prison without his permission. Yeah. It's not the master's house anymore. It's about control. Yeah. I yeah. think that's right. Yeah. It's again just to push if you've been handed stewardship over a prison and your job is to bring retributive justice to convicted felons then that means you are a torturer who allows worms in their food and and abusive men to beat them with billy clubs and gangs to run wild and rape you know individuals who are find themselves alone that's your job if your job is to restore the human being who's been entrusted into your care and make them into a better human being who has been rehabilitated, which apparently was is the target for those boards. It's totally different. He has a terrible job description or job self-understanding and his toxicity, as you were saying, he has just sunk into that mm-hmm. and allowed it to take over himself. Yeah. He is doing nothing to rehabilitate himself. The, sanct- the sanctification is nowhere on the warden's radar, even though he's a religious man. Right. It's all about these other people. Right. Well, and because, because he doesn't need to be sanctified. He's, mm-hmm. he's already in the right camp. That's it. Yeah. If you're in the right camp, that's exactly what it is. Talk about that. He's already in the right camp, so he doesn't have to do anything. Right. That's and that's that's what I was getting towards with the using religiosity as a blanket excuse. Mm-hmm. 
is that, that he, he doesn't need to, to become a better person because he's already done everything that he needs to by believing these, this set of doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. These, these are the people who need to find Jesus. Mm-hmm. He already has, so he's fine. I mean, we'll talk about pushing our numbers, pushing into excess mm-hmm. at some time in the future, I imagine. But allowing our worst selves, our worst, I want to call it our mature selves. But as we enter adulthood, there's like a, there's a depthier depravity that kind of emerges in our adult selves. It's very different from, it seems to me, our younger selves. And that's actually the obstacle. The, the worst people aren't 18. <laughs> the worst people in the world have gone to excess and they're 45, 50, 60 years right. old. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All the pieces are in place for this movie moving forward towards towards its fantastic climax. Uh, you got any, any last thoughts here uh, on the introduction of this, this nine character? Or I suppose transitional thoughts. Last thoughts are going to come after we see all the story play out. With with this scene in particular, I'm struck by the idea that Norton could have let this happen. This didn't harm anyone mm-hmm. by just letting this music play. And and this like all of the other stuff is like everything that we see of him so far. He's clearly not likable but this is the first moment that we really see his what i would call real villainy come out like yeah. he he allows negative behavior several times up to this point and this is the first moment where you see something where you see him actively doing something that that is despicable i guess mm-hmm and I, I, I think that that, like, this is, this is a great way to think about nine villainy it, is that he, he allows evil underneath his supervision for so much. But the things that really bring out him actively doing things wrong is when his personal space is violated. Mm. Yeah, it's in his so office, yeah. It, it's in his office, but it's also, like, it is his physical space, but yeah. it's also, this is one area that nobody else gets to make decisions. Mm-hmm. I am warning you, Dufresne, turn that off! And how dare somebody else make a decision that he did not approve. Yeah. Like that. I hadn't thought about like the physicality here. It's his office, his microphone. Microphones are symbols of power in the 20th yeah. century. Yep. If you have the mic, then yeah, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah. It's it's very easy for even good or let's say not bad nines to not address the things that are happening underneath them. Mm-hmm. But the place where we really start to turn is when people violate our space. It's a good word. Yeah. It's a good word. As you'll know, my favorite battles between characters never are resolved with violence. They're always who outpositions the other in the long run. 
and that's sure. one of the reasons it's just a fantastic display of of conflict between the white hat and the black hat as it were yeah uh, just uh, each of them consistently are making really thoughtful um intentional moves and it plays out as it does yep well next time we're gonna pick this up and we're gonna hit some obadiah stain and milton wadman in our next episode so Hang around. If you didn't check out our nine deep dive with Marlena, we released in your nine uh, some good stuff there. You can always, if you're if you're an Enneagram nine or love an Enneagram nine, we have a fantastic episode that we spent a lot of time on that's just labeled basics nine that's worth jumping into. And uh, as always, it would mean the world to us if you take two seconds, give us some stars and review our podcast on your platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. If you give us a shout out at Twitter or on Instagram, we routinely respond and would love to engage you. In fact, we are entering a new year of topics and we would love you to send us some thoughts on uh, where you itch, topics we should cover. The best thing you can do, however, is always share this with somebody that you love. Uh, the music here is by The Collection at Greensboro, North Carolina. It's by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and by the fantastic composer Thomas Newman, who said of the Shawshank Redemption upon watching it before he scored the film, this is a perfect movie. Why add music? <laughs> <laughs> With that said, uh, hey, TJ. Yeah. You got anything else? I got nothing, man. He's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook, and who you aren't isn't interesting. Find yourself a rock hammer and dig out of that hole that you're in. Is I think where maybe many of us are. 